Ignatz Semmelweis. Not a household name, I would gather. In fact, it's not a name you've ever read in a U.S. history book, but each one of you is thankful for Ignatz Semmelweis, whether you know it or not. I learned about him one day when I found an old book on our shelf when I was a kid back home in Kansas. It was a historical fiction novel entitled The Cry and the Covenant. And it told the story of Ignatz Semmelweis. It was written by someone by the name of Morton Thompson. And it was actually published in 1949. No, I wasn't alive then. Uh, Ignatz Semmelweis was a man who was willing to speak and and practice truth that revolutionized the entire medical field. Semmelweis was a doctor. He grew up in Hungary. He practiced medicine in Vienna, Austria. He practiced medicine in the middle of the 19th century, probably the eight, and, and since he died in 1865, then it was probably the 30s, 40s, maybe the late early 50s that he practiced medicine. His field was obstetrics. Now, in Austria and Vienna at that time, if you had money, if you were of means, then you didn't go to the hospital for childbirth. The midwife came to you. The doctor came to you. And believe it or not, that was the more sterile conditions. But if you were poor or if your birth was considered illegitimate, then you ended up being in the hospital. It is estimated that in Vienna, in that time frame, in the hospital, 25 to 30% of all infants died in childbirth. They called it childbed fever. Semmelweis was really concerned about that. Remember, this is his field. And he was concerned, why is this happening? And so he began to observe. And what he began to observe was that the, the students and the doctors who oversaw them were studying these childbirths. So they would be in the lab in the dissection room and they would dissect these infants that, were, that had this disease and, and sometimes the mothers would die too. And then they would go to examine. So they would wipe their hands off on their coats, get them all nice and clean, and then they would go to examine. And Semmelweis said, is it possible that we're just taking the disease to them? So in the hospitals where he was in charge, he started requiring everyone, you don't walk out of the dissection room without stopping first and washing your hands in a highly chlorinated solution of soap and water and drying them off thoroughly, and then you go. And you know what happened? Mortality rates dropped significantly. In one hospital, they went from 25% to zero. Some of us got called in to his supervisors. And they told him to stop his hand-washing practice. They said, it is impossible that we as doctors are transporting disease to people. We don't transport disease. We heal people. And he was told to stop. His views and his practices were considered 
extreme. They were rejected by the medical community and stayed rejected until a Frenchman named Louis Pasteur came along and began to develop germ theory and he went back and read some of Semmelweis's writings and realized he was right. Egnat Semmelweis had the courage to speak his convictions no matter the cost. And you know, it is very difficult to stand up and state what you know to be true when your superiors and your peers don't accept it. Zechariah spoke truth in 487 B.C. Now, we don't have complete evidence that his prophecies were outright rejected But we can tell from history, we can tell from looking at the nation of Israel from that time on through the end of Malachi's prophecy that we'll look at next week, through 400 years in which there wasn't an utterance from God, through the Gospels in which Jesus came and was rejected, that Zechariah's prophecies were not fully accepted. Zechariah closes out his prophetic oracle in Zechariah chapter 12, 13 and 14. We're going to survey those chapters today. And what we're going to see is this divine proclamation as he looks ahead to the future. Using that word picture that we've used as he's standing on the mountain of the present. And he's going to look at three different mountain peaks of prophecy. Mountain peaks of prophecy that some we've already seen come to fruition And as we look out over these ancient words, it's important today that we don't just look at them as ancient words. Oh, wasn't that nice? Oh, he was so poetic. That we look at him and say, wait a minute, God, how am I responding to your ancient words? How how are they impacting my relationship with you? We do not have to ever fear the future. But we can know that God's plan includes us. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Listen as I read these to begin our time together. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. 
On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. In this section, what Zechariah saw was God's protection. And what we can draw from this today is that God protects his people for a purpose. God protects his people for a purpose. These opening verses of Zechariah 12 give us kind of a word picture of God's sovereignty. That word sovereignty is a theological term. It's a term that refers to the authority of God. It, returns, it refers to the control of God. Uh, I had a professor in seminary that would say this. God knows everything that will happen. God knows everything that will not happen. And God knows all the possibilities. God's sovereignty was important for these people to remember. This is the God that established this earth. He created this earth. He put His Spirit into us. That's the God that we're talking about. And at the time, they were kind of scratching their heads a little bit. That sounds really good, Zechariah, but we're under the rule of Persia. We pay tribute to the king of Persia. We, we're not our own. And, and, you know, 150 years later, they would be subject to the rule of Greek, the Greeks. And, and then later, that would be Roman. It's like, really? And yet, Zechariah says, look, I'm looking ahead. God is going to protect Jerusalem. And it's going to be besieged by the nations. And it's going to stand strong. God reveals that Jerusalem will be a place of international conflict in which the nations would try to destroy the city. Sound familiar? God points to a day when Jerusalem will be victorious. And note the purpose. It's found in verse 5 of chapter 12. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. God protects His people so they will know that the Lord Almighty is their God. God. We need to be careful that we don't take God's glory from him. There was a different way I could have told that story about waking up last Sunday morning at three in the morning and sensing God saying you need to file that insurance claim. See, I could have said, yeah, I thought about that in the morning. I woke up. I thought I'm going to just all for kicks. I'm just going to file an insurance claim. Wow, what a great decision I made. Wasn't that genius? Wow, wasn't that great? Man, I, I, you know what, people, I am looking out after you. I am trying to say, do you see the difference in that? So often we take God's credit. The people say, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. I made that decision not because I'm some kind of insurance financial genius trust me i'm not but god kept needling me with a thought the holy spirit saying scott do that i got a plan trust me when i wrote in my journal god my big ass is for 2500 i will confess to you my faith was like about half a mustard seed 
Yeah, right. Yeah. I could just see God going, you're so cute. <laughs> you know, it's like, because so often I've said, oh, God, we need this. And, and he, he comes at it in so many different ways. You see, sometimes what God's going to do in his sovereignty, in his control, is he lets us go through some things in life that seem overwhelming to us, that in the moment seem impossible. And he brings us through those times so that we'll know in the core of our being that we're only strong, we're only able to get through the time because the Lord Almighty is our God. Now, I am completely confident, had the gal in brotherhood said, nah, sorry, you missed it. You missed it by that much. God would have found another way. We would have been okay. But how cool is it that God said, I want to do it that way. It might be that right now, in your mind, you are overwhelmed. It might be that right now you are facing something that is so devastating you don't even know how to put words to it. It may be that right now you're not wanting to look for the light at the end of the tunnel because you're afraid it could be an oncoming train. It might be that you're just kind of moving, as it were, through jello, getting one step in front of the other. And I want to remind you today, The Lord Almighty is your God, and He is right there with you. And each step of progress you make is due because He's the one who strengthens you. He does it quietly. He does it faithfully. He does it steadily. Sometimes He strengthens you by bringing someone into your life who says, for now, let me walk beside you. Let me be there to listen to you. Let me be there to be that shoulder to cry on. He brings people in just the right time to move us along. And you know what? I've said this so many times. It's almost a cliche. Sometimes we best see faith in reverse. You get through that situation. You get through that struggle. And you take a glance back and you go, Oh, (laughs) look how God saw me through. God protects his people. He protects us for a purpose. And as Zechariah looked at that mountain, he wanted to say, Jerusalem, God is on your side. Now, in the valley between the peaks, there were the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. There were so many other things. But he said, Jerusalem, you're going to ultimately be protected. Zechariah looks to another mountain, beginning in chapter 12, verse 10. And it's a mountain that when Zechariah looks at it, he doesn't fully understand it. And if I were to put a label on that mountain, it would be this. God promised that he would purify his people at a great personal sacrifice. God promised through Zechariah that he would purify his people at a great personal sacrifice. You see, we got to remember that God is a holy God. Now, sometimes that statement gets in the way. We, we get concerned. We think, oh, no, how can I ever stand up to a holy God? Now, how can I ever measure up to God's holiness? In fact, some people 
try to rationalize God's holiness. I'm sure you've heard this before. I hear it a lot. Well, I believe that the good outweighs the bad. And I believe that when you stand before God, all the good stuff you do is going to be put on this side of the scale, and all the bad stuff you did is going to be put on this side of the scale, and as long as you did more good than bad, then you're going to be okay with God. Well, that's not holiness. That's just marketing. (laughs) God says he's a holy God. And God is so much better than our attempts to rationalize. And we read very familiar words in chapter 12 and verse 10. Zechariah says this, quoting God, And I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns, for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Did you notice the the little change there? They will look on me, the one they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a child. The first thing God tells his people is that he is going to pour out his spirit of grace and supplication or grace and prayer on the family of David, and when they see what they have done, they will mourn. What Zechariah is looking at from a distance happened. In John chapter 19, verses 34 to 37, in John 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And coming to the end of that chapter, uh, the, the religious leaders said, you know, we, we're, we're coming into our Passover time. We can't leave a dead body there. And so crucifixion is a a punishment of suffocation. You're hanging there like this, and ultimately you just suffocate. And so one way you breathe when you're hanging there is you would push your feet up, because they'd be nailed, you'd push your feet up and you'd start breathing like this. So to hurry up the process, they sent the soldiers to break the legs of the thieves on the one side and the other, and that way they couldn't push up anymore and they would suffocate. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he had already given up, he had already given his spirit up. And do you remember what the soldier did? He took the spear and he pushed it into the side of Jesus, and John records that blood and water flowed out. That was the, the serum and the blood had separated. It was a sign of death. And in verse 37, John says that this fulfills what the prophet said. They will look on him whom they have pierced. It happened. God purified his people at a great personal sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son, his one and only son, dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. You fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching to the crowds after the, the, the 120 have gone out and proclaimed the message in, in the languages and the dialects of the people. And when the people heard the message now and heard it again through fresh ears, it says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted deeply. They mourned over the one that had been pierced. And, and so... Zechariah, in talking about this morning, goes on and says, but here's the reason for it. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this. On that day, 
A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. When that one is pierced, on that day, a fountain is open to cleanse them. Zechariah, looking down to the future, sees God's purification. And although he can't put words to it, he's seeing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the 1700s, there was a British poet named William Cooper. William Cooper was a man who struggled so much, grew up as a pastor's kid in in an Anglican congregation, went to schools, learned about Christ, gave his life to Christ. He struggled all his life with depression and anxiety. One day he read Zechariah 13.1 and his poetic mind began to, to work. And he wrote these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. It's page 196 in your hymnal if you ever want to look at it. Here was this man that realized that's what he understood. And as you read on in 13, you notice something. God says, I will cleanse them from their sin. The fountain will be opened, the inhabitants to cleanse them. I will banish the names of idols from the land. I will remove the prophets. And it's all God's work. And I think we need to remember that. It's not people who cleanse themselves. I cannot cleanse myself of my sin. I can confess my sin. I can agree with God that I have sinned. But I don't cleanse myself. God does the cleansing work. The prophet Jeremiah told the people that the day would come when God would remember their sins no more, that there would be no more need for repeated rituals and sacrifices. That's in Jeremiah 31, 34. The writer to the Hebrews says that this sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. What a great reminder. And what Zechariah is doing is he's looking at that truth And by God's grace, coming at it from a different angle. Zechariah says, one day, idol worship and false prophets will be removed. You know, we still wait for that day. Zechariah gave us a glimpse of a time when it would be a reality. You see, when we take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we overlay them over the prophecy of Zechariah, we understand that we are talking about what we've said, the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Zechariah says this, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver, test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Jesus quoted Zechariah 13.7 in Matthew 26.31 because he reminded his disciples, as the prophet says, because they're all saying, we're going to stick with you, Jesus. 
Man, we're going with you. We're going with you to the end. You know, it was just after Peter had said, I will die for you. And Jesus had told him, you know what, Peter, when that rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. And Jesus said, because the prophet said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He was quoting Zechariah. Why did God allow all this to happen? Because there was no other way. God is in the business of providing all that is necessary for you and me to have a relationship with Him. And when He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and for the sins of the entire world, past, present, future, He provided the way of purification at great personal cost. And you know what? That purifying process continues. Because when a person puts their faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that is not the finish line. That's the starting point. You know, uh, that's where growth begins. That's where discipleship begins. And, and how one does that, how one puts their faith in Christ, some of us have said a, a little prayer where we, we really believe that prayer. I did when I was nine years old in Salina, Kansas, on my bottom bunk of my bunk bed with my mom and dad, and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life to forgive me of my sin. I know other people, though, it was a journey. They were going this direction in life. They were, they were just headed away from anything. And, and yes, I'm pointing east for a, a reason. In, in the book of Genesis, east was always the way for, away from God. Did you notice that sometime? They, they went east out of Eden. They went east. It was kind of an interesting thing. And, and they said one day they were reading their Bible or someone was talking to them. They realized they believed and they began to turn. And they turned an about face and began to walk toward God. For some people it's been a journey. For some people it was a prayer. For some people it was just a, this change in life and change in belief. And the point is that person believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And, and then it's that point where we can say, where God says, now you're my people because you've believed in my son. And we can say, and you're my God because you have cleansed me and saved me. Zechariah looks at a third mountain peak. Over the years, Charlene and I have had a great privilege to walk along some, aside some people who've known Jesus for years. There are certain people in our lives that we say when we grow up, we want to be like them. And uh, one of those people is somebody, someone that some of you may remember, Pat Brett. Ron and Pat Brett had a special place in our hearts. Ron chaired the search committee that kind of did all the work that brought us here. And from that point on, they became really close friends. Shortly after Ron had died, uh, we got a call, and Pat was in the emergency room. Pat suffered from vertigo, and so oftentimes it would kick in, and she would lose her balance. And she had fallen, and she was okay, but she was bruised a bit. And we went into the emergency room to see her. And we walked in, and she just glared at me, and she looked at me, with that South African accent, and she said, why am I still here? I said, well, well, Pat, 
they're going to keep you overnight. Uh, they just want to observe you. They want to make sure you're fine. Uh, and so, yeah, I began to explain it from that point. And she went, no. Why am I still here? Oh. Her question was, why am I still on this earth? Why am I still here now? She was ready to depart. She was ready. What's left? She was ready to go be with the Lord. She was tired. She wanted to go home to heaven. And the final peak that Zechariah looks at is a peak that reflects that reality and that desire. You see, the fact is, when we come into faith with Jesus Christ, we learn something that we didn't think we we, we thought we knew what life was about, and we realized we are created for so much more than this life has to offer. The best of what this life has to offer is temporary. We were created for so much more. Zechariah, in chapter 14, sees a mountain, and if I were to put a label on it, it would be, the Lord promises to return. The Lord promises to return. This is a bottom line reality in the Bible. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a virgin. We'll celebrate that in a few weeks. He lived, he taught, he died, he rose again. And as he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, the angel said to the the disciples that were there looking up, uh, this is the Scott Howington free translation, why are you gawking up in the sky? You know, in Chicago, we have gapers delays, right? People just gaping at this accident. Why are you gaping? He's coming back. This same Jesus, he's coming back the same way he left. He's coming back. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. We don't know when that will happen, but we're reminded in Scripture repeatedly, are you ready? Are you ready? And what Zechariah says here is the Lord's going to come to reign someday. A day of the Lord is coming, 14.1. Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then, so, okay, Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. It's going to be badder than bad. It's going to be really bad. And when you think it's just about as bad as it can get, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. When the Lord returns, he says it's going to be a time in which he comes back in power. In power to this earth. There's going to be an upheaval of nature because the creator is returning. Verse 6 says, on that day, 
There will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. There's going to come a day in which there's going to be light. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? Or in, in John, he said, I am the light of the world. God says it's going to be a day of spiritual renewal. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it from east to the Dead Sea and half of it west of the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, his name, the only name. In John 4, Jesus went up to Samaria. You know the story. Disciples went in to get some food. There was this poor woman that came to draw water. Jesus went and said, ask her for a drink. They got into a conversation. And he said, you know, if you knew the water I would give you, you know it would be living water. You would never thirst. Zechariah. Zechariah said, there's going to be living water. Zechariah says the Lord will be king over the earth. One day there will be one Lord. There's going to be a renewed awareness that there truly is only one God. And His name will be the only name. See, we live in a time, we live in a time of pluralism. People say it really doesn't matter what God you believe, no matter what name you call Him, they're all the same. And God says, absolutely not. And to or three or four fundamentally antithetical faiths can't really get along because they believe completely different things. Being called in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John said, there is only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. And it's interesting, later on, the, the, the leaders took note that although these were un, uh, ordinary, unschooled men, they're just a bunch of rubes from Galilee who are fishermen, they took note that they had been with Jesus. What a great thing. Do people take note that you and I have been with Jesus? Our current culture will call that kind of talking a little bit narrow-minded, maybe extreme. But the reality is, and I want to say, you got to hear me right here, biblical Christianity. Now, you put the word Christianity out there, and there are all kinds of icks, ticks, and schisms. There are all kinds of different ways that people believe. But when you come down to the core truth of the Bible, it works. It's the belief system that works. A friend of ours sat at our kitchen table once put their hand over on a Bible, and this person said, you know what? And they went through the litany of different things that they had tried, but they said, this book, this book was the only book that spoke to my soul, that had the answers for my soul. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is consistent with itself. Sometimes the way we practice it is inconsistent. When you come back to the core realities, it's a consistency. Biblical Christianity brings us to two, always brings us back to the two great commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. One day, Jesus will return. 
It's interesting, if you get down to the end of Zechariah 14, look at these words, these last few words. On that day, holy to the Lord. In that sense, holy means separated, okay? That's really what holy means. It means to be set apart. Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots and the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. God says there's going to come a day when we're going to understand that everything... Everything, even the, the dishes that we eat off of or cook in, is holy to the Lord. And for us, that ought to be today. You see, Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, we're going to look that all through next year. We're going to go through Romans. Paul says, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. You know, sometimes we talk about when we sing, that's the worship. No, it's not. It's part of the worship. You see, when you go to work tomorrow and you do your best at your job, you are acting in worship to God. And when you, when you spend time with your family and you hang out together, that's worship. And when you're putting clothes on the washer or putting dishes in the dishwasher, you're, you're worshiping God. Everything we do is holy to the Lord. And Zechariah says that's the promise for the future, but we can live the promise now. You see, what Zechariah proclaimed in mysterious ways, you and I can experience. God is the one who watches over you in protection. God is the one who's already offered you cleansing and purification from sin through Jesus Christ. God is the one who will keep his promise, and one day Jesus will return. In the 1840s, the established medical community refused to listen to Ignaz Semmelweis. They just could not understand that the way that they had always practiced medicine could in any way inflict disease on any person. Even when the facts were right there in front of them, they refused to accept that washing their hands in a chlorinated water solution was, was the reason for the drop in mortality rates. Sadly, Dr. Semmelweis died in a mental institution, a broken and misunderstood man. But his discovery saved countless lives. The religious leaders in Jerusalem missed Jesus the first time. They were so caught up in what they knew and in maintaining their tradition, and in trying to make their lives work on the way that they thought that their faith should work on their own terms, they missed Jesus. He didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their expectations. He wasn't part of the club. He, he didn't fit the system. But the message for you and me is not what they did or did not do. It's what do you and I do with the information we have? How do we choose to respond to the Messiah promised by Zechariah, Jesus, who fulfilled the prophecies? He's coming back. We will face him someday. If we have put our faith in him, will he be pleased with how we've exercised that faith? And if we've not put our faith in him yet, 
by God's grace, there's still time. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for prophets like Zechariah who spoke truth, even when it may not have come across as being popular. Thank you for the way that we can look at your word in the past, and then we can see how it was fulfilled, and and now we can apply it to our lives in the present. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to examine our hearts and make sure that we are following you. And I think of that little prayer that I quote so often, Lord, change me. May that be the prayer of our heart today. Lord, do what you need to do in me so I can continue to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.